0: My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides. Making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art. Which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, apocalypse. Said, why you wanna show up? These good. Mm-hmm. Hello, all my Eumenidites. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you with another episode of Euripides Humanities a theater history podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you're subscribing or following or any of that stuff. Review, rate, whatever. Do it. I want to get right to today's episode, but I have to mention some places that I'm getting some new followers. Hello, Missouri! I love seeing the upswing there. I I have to share with you that I have something of a connection to the Show Me State as I got my graduate degree from Missouri State University in Springfield. Of course... I got that degree online, so I've only been to the campus once for graduation, (laughs) but I cherish my connection there, and I hope if you're driving today, your travel is somewhat free of armadillos, and if anybody's in the Missouri State area, get your tickets now for Tent Theater. Seriously, look it up. What a cool concept. Also, I have to say hello to my listeners in Minnesota. I do so love the Twin Cities, and I long to get back up there someday. For those of you that don't know, Minneapolis is a huge theater town, and it may still be, but at one time was second to New York City in theater seats per capita. As always, Missouri and Minnesota, if you'd like Euripides Humanities to be seen as an in-person show in your area, let me know. But without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Towards the beginning of the episode, I explain something of the genesis of a new episode type that I'm going to be exploring. As you've probably seen on your podcast provider or wherever you're listening, I'm going to call these episodes Shakespeare adapted. The plays of the Bard are some of the most done and redone plays in history and have inspired new perspectives or retelling since their inception over 400 years ago. For this first one, I decided to go big. Let's just sink our teeth into arguably the most well-known of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet. For this episode, I actually conceived of it in two halves, but each conversation was so good and had so much fascinating input that I had to split it into two separate episodes. For the second, which you'll hear in two weeks, you'll hear my interview with my son Mike, who, when he heard what I'd be talking about, said, please let me talk to you on the show about... The Lion King. So, we'll be getting to that in two weeks. But today, I met up with an old friend and a new one, both of whom have been longtime members of the Seattle-based Shakespeare Company Green Stage, which has been providing Shakespeare in the Park to the Seattle area for decades. The old friend is Nicole Vernon, who I've done a show with, And once I asked Nicole to be on the show, she suggested another guest, her good friend, Amelia Meckler Bowers. Both Nicole and Amelia have worked with Green Stage multiple times over the years in many different capacities on and off stage. So their input into this topic is truly delightful and the product of years of experience. So enough for me. Without further ado, I present to you part one of Shakespeare adapted Hamlet. Nicole, it's been years since I've seen you, and yeah. and I I feel <laughs> a, 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 a sense of responsibility for your uh, experience in Shakespeare to a degree.
1: <laughs> yeah. I know. You are the agent by which I met many of my very best friends. So. Oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah. So short end of the story is I had been in Seattle about uh, a year, I think, at that point. And I had just gotten into a uh, an outdoor Shakespeare in the Park production of Midsummer Night's Dream for a company called Green Stage, which is still in operation. And they've been doing outdoor Shakespeare in the Park every summer for what? God, is it getting on to like... Thirty think, years now.
1: I think this is our thirty-fifth season. Oh
0: my goodness!
1: Kind of, still counting twenty-twenty because we did some online stuff. So.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And I, uh, before we get into your story, I got to say I love that that period where y'all were doing the hard bard. <laughs> I I bought the hoodie so I could wear it around my hometown and be like, yeah, I know this incredibly niche, gory, uh, thing that is going on in Seattle, and you don't. Uh, <laughs> For anybody who's interested, go ahead and yeah. go ahead and look up uh, hard Barred green stage. Just yes, Google that stuff. Those but,
1: are on YouTube, and I think it's yeah. probably one of the few productions of like Cardinio you will mm. ever find. So
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, short end of the story. Uh, our our uh, I was in Midsummer Night's Dream, and we had a few actors who who couldn't couldn't continue on, and so uh, all of us were dispatched to go find people. And so I went to uh, Nicole's place. I, I knew her roommate a little better and uh, her roommate couldn't do it. But Nicole's like, yeah, I'm I'm free. And it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened because uh, you're Hermia still. I, I just look back and go, what a tortured little bimbo full of fury.
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And it's so funny because I am so- Fairly tall for a woman, five, six, five, seven. So, yeah, uh, is not a part that I really should play. But
0: uh, <laughs> fortunately, our, our Helena for that was a little bit taller. Yes. So, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah. And then I just kept showing up. So, yeah. Why so,
0: yeah. And you've been you have been doing uh, green stage for a long time. Uh, how many productions did you do with them? Ultimately, mm-hmm.
1: you know, I'm not. I would have to go back and look. I've been involved every year, but some years I've done things like house managing or like when we were doing the hard barge shows, I wouldn't do a summer show. I would do the indoor show. So Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I guess since 2006, I've been involved every year.
0: that's a chunk of performances and that's awesome. And thank you for your commitment to that because it's still huge. It's still got a huge following. I mean, you know, uh, Seattle is such, like it's such a fantastic market and the outdoor theater scene is alive and well. Yeah. Cool. Nicole, thanks for being on. And, and, and Amelia, you're here as well. And, and this is my first time actually meeting you. You know, I think we were, adjacent to each other in a lot of circles when i was in seattle uh yeah. but you've been involved with green stage for quite a while too is that right
2: uh yeah indeed it is it is how nicole and i met and we are uh we are the best of friends she was in my
0: wedding <laughs> <laughs> well that's pretty close yeah I know.
2: shakespeare's yeah.
1: all about weddings <gasps> true
0: so your your story ended as a comedy
2: yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, I started with Green Stage right when I moved uh, to Seattle. I was trying to add up the number uh, of shows that I did with them. And I am not as active as I once was, but similar to Nicole, I joined the company and wouldn't go away and ended up (laughs) doing, you know, like 20 years of Shakespeare (laughs) with them. I've even today, in honor of our conversation, I've got my 2002 season mug. Wow. Oh, whoa. Oh, yeah. I no, didn't even, doesn't. I didn't even try, but
1: I've got my 2011 season mug right here. So it's
2: oh, one of my favorites and mine broke. I was oh. sad about that mug. That was a good mug.
0: Yeah. I don't know what I'm thinking, but I have my Shakespeare insults T-shirt that I just recently <laughs> lost some weight and I can fit into it again. So I'm like, oh, I could have. But now here I am in my Atari T-shirt. Way to go, Aaron. <laughs> um, but OK, so uh, Amelia, can I, uh, you know, since this is the first time you and I have really spoken, is that that can't be just your sole experience in Shakespeare, was it? Or was it this was the job that landed and I stuck with it?
2: I've been kind of a Shakespeare nerd most of my life, you know, Mm -hmm. you sort of discover it in middle school and discover either it's kind of your thing or it's not. And so at least, well, that's not true. You can discover it at any time. Let me be clear.
0: (laughs) True. Very true. Yes. Yes.
2: But for me, yeah. You know, you're, I'm in middle school and I think I can write poetry and I'm reading Shakespeare. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. I I don't know about you but I would carry my complete
2: works around in middle school. Oh my. And-
0: oh. Yes.
2: I did not get a complete works till I went to college. Um, <laughs> so you win that battle. <laughs> oh. Do man. I do I? But I didn't I didn't actually get to perform Shakespeare until I got to college. I always ended up in the other show kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
2: And then I I went to Hofstra University which is um on Long Island in New York. And the thing that they are kind of most famous for is their Shakespeare Festival. Back in the, I wanna say 70s, they were the first to build a replica of the Globe Theater. Oh, whoa. And it was built like a like a puzzle. So when they would do their Shakespeare Festival, they would rebuild the Globe on their main stage with oh. like all three levels. And so you even had the like musician window up at the top, and it's if you look it up, it's spectacular. We reused that set for decades, and then I think in the two thousands, they uh, they rebuilt it again with new materials. Oh. Because it was time.
0: See <laughs> so here, Amelia, I'm sitting here going. I-, I can't wait for you to finish that up because I want to ask, is it still going on? Because I need another bucket list uh vacation place to go. And uh and now I, I am absolved. Yay! Yeah, they don't build it every year.
2: Oh. But um, like when I went, it was every other year they would do the globe stage. Um, and it was, you know, the I guess spring production uh Shakespeare Festival. So that so my school is there was very focused on Shakespeare, so mm-hmm. took the real deep dive once I started studying at that school. They're much more of a, I think still are a sort of classical training uh for the actor and lots of classical text
0: ah, oh, that's great. That's gonna be a wonderful segue here in just a moment uh, <laughs> for where we're gonna be going today, <laughs> but, um. Oh, and then just man. one other
2: thing, Aaron, to know yeah. about me is not only do I perform Shakespeare, I've also directed a number of Shakespeare plays <gasps>
0: um, for, for Green Stage. So. Now that's interesting. That okay, that's an even better segue. I'm gonna forget what I was going to just uh, tangent with and just go right into what we're talking about today. And thank you for sharing those experiences. But um, being that you have directed Shakespeare, being that Nicole has acted and done a lot of things around Shakespeare, I've done sh- several Shakespeare shows myself. I've touched on the bard on this show several times. Uh, if nobody's listened to my Shakespeare and Starlings episode, uh, go back and listen to that. Uh, we have starlings in America today, and they are one of the great wildlife plagues in uh, the country because somebody wanted to release every uh, <laughs> bird that was mentioned in Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amelia's jaw just hit the floor. Go back and listen to that episode. It's great. I'm gonna go back and um, listen to that episode. It's yeah. so it's so funny. Um, but uh the fact is we th- there is a term classical that uh it has several different definitions, and in the theater world that usually means um a show that has lasted the test of time. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, yeah I think that's a fair assessment
0: okay so in in general i could say um and 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 agree or disagree a a bulk of shakespeare's works can be considered classical some of them might not be able to meet the test of time most of them still can can work uh i think they can work in a lot of different uh you know i i think i saw my first production of cymbeline a couple years ago and i went really okay bring it on um but even at that like so many shows get done every single year and yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where (laughs) I'm going to
2: jump in because what's interesting to me about what you just said is sort of the bulk of, and I would disagree Mm -hmm. and say you can do any because they do have these resurgences of, of meaning. And of course, you know, anything can be adapted, but even when you're trying to stick, stick to the original, they're, they're cyclical, right? So things like symboline, um, come back around and seem relevant and i'm pretty sure that um oh god what's the horrible one with the nun and the rape um (laughs) measure for measure Measure for measure um yeah (laughs) right but in today's political climate like i'm sure measure for measure is probably going to make a resurgence in the next oh man Yeah. yeah it's a show everyone watches and cringes but as we get more puritanical in a lot of uh, laws right now. I could see, Mm. you know, that becoming a show that has its place again.
1: I will say that, so Green Stage, another thing that we've done is we did complete the canon and we are trying to work through it again, meaning we have done all of the shows. And I wasn't involved (laughs) for all of them, and there are definitely a couple that, we will see when we get back around to them for various reasons you know i think uh, they're especially because we present outdoors in a park with no doors anybody can wander through there are definitely some shows that you maybe want more context before you watch a bunch of anti-Semitic talk or whatever okay yep i see where you're going there yeah but i think that i'm with amelia i think they all have something and they're all classics that's for sure. and i did think back to your definition there like classic theater like on the pedestal like raw and then there's also like this is classic theater as in like this is ben johnson it is old theater but nobody knows any ben johnson or many of Shakespeare's compatriots because yes they're old but they're not classics
0: mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. even though like they all kind of did the same thing taking stories mm-hmm. from folklore or wherever they could that that their audiences might know a little bit of the story going in there's that context and and i'm going to do the horrible host backpedaling thing and go yes i do uh, agree with you but i think that uh, amelia as you were suggesting there are plays that would fit a certain time better than others so you know some of them might not fit today's political climate but in a couple years go, oh this this actually is really relevant now uh, we're going to be talking about that here in just a minute, but um, I I was having a great conversation with the daughter of the woman who walks beside me the other day, who she sends me this song and she goes, do you think that we could write a Romeo and Juliet musical off of this? And I can't remember the name of the song, uh, but it's like this vampire pop ballad. As soon as I heard it, I thought of uh, Sarah Bareilles in Waitress. That's what it sounded like to me. That was that was the tone of the song. And she's like, but could this be like a Romeo and Juliet with vampires? And I went, uh, explain. She said it would just be fun to mess with Shakespeare a little bit. And I'm like, it's been done. And she's like, Well, what do you mean? And so I started listing all of these movies. And she's in, you know, the Zoomer generation. So most of the movies I'm listing are from my uh Gen X Xennial uh, generation where we're, I'm like 10 things I hate about you. You don't know that movie. Oh, what about this one? What about this? Uh, you haven't seen. She's the man. All of them. No, I'm like, come on, the Lion King. And she's like, oh, that's a Shakespeare. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I went back to it and I went, this would be such a fun thing for me to talk to other theater professionals and rate adapted Shakespeare for major modern audiences. And so today, we're going to hit the big one. We're going to hit Hamlet. So I think it would be most appropriate to start with kind of a general understanding of Hamlet first. However, I'm not going to give everybody the entire thing. So here we go, kind of a teaser. And and feel free to interject with any other like overarching details. I, I don't want to hit into the details too much, but... Prince Hamlet of Denmark, who's devastated by the death of his father and is approached by the ghost of his father and informed that he was murdered by his brother, the new king, Claudius. Claudius also wasted no time and married Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, and the ghost implores Hamlet to avenge his father's murder. And through the rest of the play, Hamlet is determining whether or not he should do that or other things. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that's general enough, don't you think? yeah Yeah. okay and like i said for better or for worse that's all i'm gonna tell you for those of you who don't like spoilers go read the play or (laughs) watch a version but we're probably going to be talking about some spoilers here today and if you'd rather wait until you have some experience with the play feel free to come back when you've had that experience but if you're one of those spoilers be damned people we'll just continue on and What I will say, for those of you who don't know it, is that it is a revenge-based British Renaissance tragedy. Therefore, there's lots of death, especially at the end. It's widely known for its ability to offer a momentous acting challenge for anyone who wants to take on the title role, or any role in the play, for that matter.
1: Yeah, I think, well, talking about spoilers with... Shakespeare, and specifically Hamlet, I think the funny thing is, and we'll probably get so much more into this, is that I think most people think they already know the show, or there Mm. are quotes that you know from the show. My dad, for some reason, constantly says, Ophelia, nymph, in thy orisons, which is not a complete sentence also. It means nymph in thy prayers the <laughs> remainder of that line is remember me he's asking her to remember him in his in her <laughs> prayers but my dad just says that and my dad is not a shakespeare guy so i think and that's not a famous quote from that play um, i was going to say is he a religious
0: guy at least <laughs> i don't know <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows so i think that is a funny thing about about Hamlet and a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Romeo and Juliet a little bit, and I think they're definitely some of those big, heavy hitters that people think they already know it. And even I'll fall into that, um, that trap of thinking, like, oh, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet, I, blah, blah, blah. And then I've seen it so many times. And then I read <laughs> it not too long ago, and I was like, oh, that's right. This is so good.
0: Yeah, so. I think that's such an interesting point you make, Nicole. Is that when you adapt something that is part of the ever-evolving zeitgeist, you just have people who are like, "Well, it's part of culture, so I'm, I, yeah. I, I get it."
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So now I will say this: in the theater world, it's not uncommon for us to see multiple Hamlets within a lifetime on the stage. I mean it's unlike film or television uh in theater a new production of Hamlet is not necessarily considered a reboot or a remake. You know, you have your film and TV buffs who are like that person can't play James Bond and you're like yeah, give it a shot, you know? I mean <laughs> whatever. But in the theater world like when you hear of a local production of hamlet or something like that or even a big stage production of hamlet like on broadway or in the west end and they say this actor is going to play hamlet you go ooh now that would be an interesting take so for us it's it's kind of like we look at that uh, as an opportunity to see what a new production team is going to have with their approach to potentially fresh ideas right
2: that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, how much we with something like film, where, you know, it is, it is this perfected deliverable, right? That everyone right. knows exactly how it works. Whereas, you know, stage plays are live. So somehow we are more amenable to the idea of a new and different production. And of course the actors are going to be different. Of course they are. Cause it's a play but even when it is a film adaptation of the play we're still way more open to the idea of oh this is different actors and different interpretations because of course it is it was you know written in 1602 like <laughs> <laughs> we're back to the vampires right if right. We we're gonna take all the same actors but we want a different interpretation we want to see what someone has done with the role and I think James Bond is actually a good example of people being a lot more open now that mm-hmm. it's happened seven times or however many it is. Yeah, with Shakespeare, we're excited to see what someone will do and to, to sort of compare to previous versions if you've seen it before. And it creates good conversation because you're able to say, well, that wasn't my favorite Hamlet, but the <laughs> Ophelia, that might be my new favorite Ophelia. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That you can do that and you sort of put together your perfect cast, right? Yes. And your, your favorite interpretation and version. And <laughs> oh, I saw it when it was done as a 1920 speakeasy. And that's exciting instead of being like, you know, dismissed as ridiculous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I feel
1: like in that too especially with the shows that I've seen many times or worked on, it means that there are certain moments that like, I don't care what happens to get you to that moment. But like, especially in Hamlet, the recorder scene with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, like that is one of my favorite scenes. It's a tiny scene, but if Hamlet doesn't nail that little piece To me, I'm like, oh, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) That's your
0: linchpin. Yes.
1: (laughs) So, but I think that as, again, that's the joy of seeing so many different versions of different Shakespeare plays is that each play that's how you know I'm a real nerd. Each play has like maybe three <laughs> or four of those. like, And you get out of certain productions and you're like, well, it was a community theater play. But man, they actually got my five checklist things. And mm-hmm. then other ones, you know, oh, well, they did a great job on the set and costumes, had lots of money. But apparently nobody studied the text enough to get
0: One part. (laughs) oh man and i was supposed it's different for us because we've all performed in shakespeare as well so i mean and, and and that's a point where we've got to take ourselves out of it a little bit and go i'm not involved with this specific production but even that like i've played dogberry in much ado so i will look at every dogberry and go well what did you do differently because i'm not sure that i nailed that part or I might look at a Caliban because I played Caliban and I go, I feel like got that one. What are you doing wrong? <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Especially when you're a performer and you've done the role. So you feel like you did that text work. I think you're especially uh judgmental, not only of what you've seen, but also of your performance. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, no, that was better. Yeah. Oh no.
0: <laughs> Damn it. I missed that one. <laughs> Um, Getting back to the topic at hand, uh, what I brought you here to talk about is that concept we talked about just a little bit earlier, where we in the theater world were like, okay, I'm going to be able to see a new version of this and be okay with it. But when it's made into a major motion picture for a mass audience, that in a way is kind of like stapling an adaptation to a generation in a way. And saying, this is the definitive version of this for this generation. And I think that's what I want to talk about today.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) I absolutely know what my definitive movie was.
0: Ooh. Okay. Well, yeah, Uh, we'll get to that. And I want to see if one of them is, is your one. Okay. So I guess the first question is why do we adapt something in the first place? Why do we make it into something that everybody should see? And I guess I will start going back to that idea of their classic stories. So there's something that has transcended time and circumstance. So we're talking about Hamlet. One of the primary themes in Hamlet is revenge is bad. Okay. Uh, And it can consume you completely and destroy everything around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so, okay. So that's something that uh, human beings have not quite figured out yet. And we probably still just have to con- continue to tell that story until we do, or we may never actually do it.
1: Yes. What do you do with those big feelings
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Of, of revenge? Like, we all have big feelings like that. We yes. want our art to show one of the things that you can do with those feelings.
0: <laughs> and one of those things is destroy everything around you.
1: Yes, and hopefully then we learn that maybe that's not the way we're going to deal with our own life. And we're all going to contemplate our, our mortality and we're all, you know, churning with these things, with backstabbing friends, with lovers we don't know if we can trust, with annoying potential father-in-laws. Like, these are all <laughs> things that occur in our life.
0: Well, uh, I found a blog that I enjoyed what this person had to say about some rules about why you adapt. He had a few ways, and I think this is uh, as performers or even directors or designers, uh, when we get the opportunity to do a Shakespeare play, when we get the opportunity to do a Hamlet, we can think of uh, maybe one of these things. And maybe there's some other things we can add to this list, but there's an opportunity to completely reimagine a classic. There is the opportunity to pay homage to that source material and or the author. But then there's the opportunity to deviate from the source material and tell it in a completely new way.
1: In theater... Some people, that first idea, the like doing your own interpretation, that can be a mixed bag. I feel like sometimes (laughs) that means that somebody, I mean, we mentioned Measure for Measure and I was around a production of that where the director had their idea that the comic parts of Measure for Measure were forced upon Shakespeare and they weren't originally supposed to be in there and they ruin the flow of the play. So he cut all of the comedic subplot. No,
0: no. Okay. All right. See, there's my recorder scene. I'm sorry, I'm out. Bye. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, and though I did not actually even make it to callbacks, which broke my heart, (laughs) but what I am... What happened during callbacks, I can't say whether this was the actual casting, but all of the men up for the Duke and all of the women up for Isabella, the nun, um, were lined up in height order, <gasps> and the shortest woman was cast and the tallest man.
0: But you can't say that for a fact. You can't
1: say the fact <laughs> <laughs> So it just, just worked I, out that way. Yeah. I love both of those actors. They were amazing, but it was clearly the director had a vision of power and how that dynamic was going to work out. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing in Shakespeare. There are, that is a piece of the play, but if that's the only thing you're harping on, you're probably missing a lot of the rest of the play.
0: Well, and, and the thing is, like, I th- I hear something like that and I go, yeah, that is in there, but you know where it is also other plays and maybe other plays that specifically talk about that theme. Like, if you want to yeah. talk about that theme specifically, yeah, it's in this play. You're right. But it's it's in other plays or, hey, how about this? Yeah. Write your own.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but then again, then on the flip side, the fun part of Shakespeare is that because there are so many different versions, then when you get to see the one version where, say, let's forget about the whole cutting half the play, but you know, when you see the one where, oh my gosh, they cast this super burly guy to play Hamlet, Mm -hmm. and usually he's played as this little poetic waif. And suddenly it brings something new to the role. And
2: so that can be fun just by nature of doing the play. So not too long ago, I think it was just last year, a movie came out called
0: uh, The Northman. Oh, I was going to talk about it. (laughs) That's fine though. This is perfect. Go for it.
2: And the thing with The Northman was, it was like, oh, it's an adaptation of Hamlet and it's all burly and Norse and da, 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 da. And it's like- no, no, it's not. Actually, Hamlet is an adaptation of this North yes, North le- legend. And I looked it up, so I would say it right, but it's the Saxo's legend of Amleth? Amleth. Amleth. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, even for, you know, and we, we know being the Shakespeare nerds, we are that, you know, he didn't come up with all of these ideas and as cute as Shakespeare love is, um keeps he readapting he's adapting and that's why i think it works adapt well but it is this great norse legend that hamlet's built on which is part of why he's you know he, he's a dane and it's set where it's set it's not like shakespeare was pretending he didn't base it on this legend but that's been lost over time
0: mm-hmm. so
2: when this movie came out everyone was talking about it as an adaptation of hamlet When it's really just an adaptation of this great legend, which is what Shakespeare used in the first place. Yeah.
0: And then uh, actually to kind of tack onto that, um, uh, I I don't know if this is legitimate or not. I think I've talked about it on this show at some point, but when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, it was because he'd seen a production of another version of the same story at another theater. And he went, oh, I can do that. And he wrote his own. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's how it happened. They took stories that people knew it's kind of like taking our fairy tales that we're all familiar with and retelling them in a certain way or from a certain viewpoint i mean that one oh i just i started it yesterday i never could really get into it i forced myself through it and i got to the end and i went cool oh
2: (laughs) have you seen it nicole
1: I did. I saw it on an airplane, so not the most (laughs) ideal setting for a very visual story. I really liked it. I definitely feel like the ending was... oh, It was like that frictious feeling of like, oh no, this isn't right. And unlike Hamlet, if you do the whole play has the nice Elizabethan bookends to like put the world right for you. Yes, and, like, yes. The next, the next Monarch is coming in. All is right with the world, even though we went through this tumultuous time. And so I did feel like I was missing something like that, but I think that was the movie. So that's fine. Yeah. And, um, and-
0: and honestly, I think I was spoiled in my enjoying of it, knowing that they were trying to really force this Hamlet story into it.
1: I get that, but I didn't, I wasn't too hung up on it. But I think that is a problem with adaptations in general, is if it gets mm. too far in your head, and then you're mm-hmm. like, wait, but are these the, is this the servant that comes in to deliver the message? Like, if you get <laughs> too far into it.
0: <laughs> and where is my fortune, Bross? Yes. <laughs> so getting back to just the idea of why we adapt, there's a couple other things. Like one, we, we kind of been hitting on it and and I'll briefly come back to this later uh, is like you change the point of view, like you tell the story from somebody else's perspective in it or you tell it mainly from you know a, a, a different political perspective or from the uh, understanding of a different sociocultural perspective or something like that. Some would also say, that there's only a certain number of basic plot lines that can be told and retold. And I I've heard the number differently over the years. People have said there's only five different stories. There are three. Uh, one guy I've met you know, said there's specifically 17. And I'm like, that's a very oddly specific number. I mean, are these only prime numbers or what? I don't know. 42. 42. Oh, the answer to everything. And we've already kind of hit on it. Some would say Shakespeare is something of a plagiarist. I freaking love that. That is the funniest, some of the funniest clickbait I see out there. When, uh, you know, you're just surfing around on social media or something, and somebody's like, Shakespeare stole all his stories. I'm like, oh, you're just figuring that out?
2: (laughs) Are you in grad school?
0: (laughs) And then some would say this, oh God, I love this. This was another perspective I read somewhere. So where is the line drawn between fan fiction and something legitimately new? <laughs> and I go, oh God, that is a thing, isn't it? Because isn't Fifty Shades of Grey like fan fiction of Twilight or something yeah. like that? I just
2: learned that. I had no right. idea. I've never read the books or seen the movies, but I just right. heard that recently and I was like, huh. I had no idea.
0: So, what do you think? Are adaptations just fanfic? Is there no originality left? Do you have a favorite Hamlet? We'll be talking about several stage and screen versions in the second half, but... Before we get there, I sure would appreciate to have you follow the show on Instagram. We're at Euripides underscore Eumenides or at Trident Theater with an R E at the end. And or please rate and review on your podcast provider. However, let's find out which adaptations we talk about. Some may surprise you. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. Another fascinating thing about adaptations of Hamlet, that show has become kind of the benchmark to test new and hot young actors. When somebody is starting to get new and popular and cool and they're noted for their acting, they're going to go, you know, everybody's going, okay, cool, when are you doing a Hamlet? And I remember this in college, my, the the guy who gave me the namesake for this episode, Tom Empey was like, you know, Robert Downey Jr. really needs a Hamlet. It was, if it just wasn't for those drugs, he'd probably have it by now. And I'm like, oh, I would have killed to see a Robert Downey Jr. Hamlet. That
2: would have been, yeah.
0: So here are some ones of note that I found in my research that went mostly directly to the stage 2009 David Tennant.
2: Yeah. Is that the one I heard was Horrible? Uh, he, I haven't seen the whole
1: thing. They do the soliloquies directly to the camera. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
2: think that that is strange. But oh, I actually met on stage. Oh. I, I feel like some friends saw it and were just utterly disappointed because they loved David Tennant so much. And they like saw it in London and they were just like this, it was so bad. Why was it so bad? <laughs> We're just going to pretend we never saw that like, kind of moment.
0: Well, there's another one I'm going to mention here in a uh, moment, and maybe we'll determine whether or not it was this one or that one, but um, this David Tennant one, Nicole, maybe you can tell me, one of the reviews I read said it's one of the funniest performances of Hamlet I've ever seen, because David Tennant is so great at his ability to mock other people.
1: Yeah. Although- <laughs> Hamlet is really funny. Yes, um, in the in the core of the play, there are, mm-hmm. there are some jokes. Yeah, I mean, going back to my recorder scene, it's <laughs> some jokes. Yeah, and he—I think a lot of productions don't play up the madness in the middle. Um, mm. One of the last versions that I saw really did, and it worked really well. There were other problems with the production but it was one of the first one that you know it was sort of moderny dress and so when hamlet comes back
0: yes bonkers
1: yeah. he was like wearing a hawaiian shirt and wearing one tall sock and one no sock and and all of the things that are described in ophelia's ma- uh, monologue and then he continued to wear that costume for the majority of That act I think So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think a lot of productions Don't Mm -hmm. lean into the comedy So I don't know I don't know if the David Tennant one Was
2: the bad one or not But I do think you have to have that humor Just like you have to have it in all of the plays Or else it's also just to me Life doesn't exist in a vacuum There's always humor in everything But he is written To be To be humorous Even when he's not playing mad And likable, but the poor Yorick quote, that one alone, when he's not playing mad and he's really just, and he's in a moment of of sadness, really. But alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, was a a man of, a fellow of infinite jest, and he's a jester. Like, come on. It's funny. It, (laughs)
0: It is. It is that that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, when I'm teaching acting or directing or I'm directing myself and Amelia maybe this is how you do this too, but if I'm doing something like a Hamlet where I know at the end the end goal is to get everybody in a really down contemplative mood over what they've just witnessed, through the rest of the thing I'm looking for the humor. I'm trying to bring that out because I'm like we are humans if the thing has a very serious tone let's find the humor if i'm doing something really really funny i want to find the pain it's it's the flip side of that that makes people enjoy it in my opinion
2: i i completely agree if you don't have the contrast it's not interesting to me oh it's just
0: it's just a dirge
2: yeah and it's <laughs> one note you're just on you're on one note of emotion and and unless you are seeking that out unless you want to listen to your heartbreak song over and over for 3 hours because that's the mood you're in and the emotion you want to ride for three hours. Like you can choose that,
0: ooh, but ooh. you're not
2: going to find an audience of 300 people who want to choose that for three hours. Nope. So you can go, you know, watch Ophelia's scene over
0: and over. <laughs> <laughs> instead. Watch Laertes cry over Ophelia's body for three hours. That's fun. Yeah. Um, oh, here's an interesting point about that David Tennant one. You know who his Claudius was? Nicole?
1: To, was it Patrick Stewart?
0: It was Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah, and that—that's—that's that's one of those things that and on the outside you hear David Tennant up against Patrick Stewart. Ooh, I want to go see that. I need to see that now. But I mean, you're also talking about two incredibly gifted actors who you're like, oh, I definitely dig to see that.
1: So there's a sorry, but there's a there's a film of that. There is a film of mm-hmm. it, and I guess. The only thing I can speak to is I did start it at one point and then I've never finished it. So, is that a comment on the film and the production, or is that a comment on my ability to remember
0: all of the things that are on my
1: to-do list? I don't know.
0: Well, okay. Here's what I'm wondering too. I, I and I didn't actually see it. I've only kind of seen pictures of it, but I think it's a filmed version of the stage. Yeah, uh, it's production in the National
2: theater. Yeah,
0: uh, I think it's Royal Shakespeare Company. Okay. Yeah, but but same thing. It like aired on the BBC, and now you can buy it from PBS or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So here's the next one, 2015, Benedict Cumberbatch.
2: Ooh.
0: I've seen this one. Ooh. This was done at the National Theatre, and the local red eyes here has that subscription to the National Theatre, oh, so no. I I watched that one. But here's, <laughs> I'm not going to give my stink on it. <laughs> I've already kind of talked about it in previous shows, but here we go. From reviews, it was a, quote, just fine Hamlet in the middle of a production with design concepts that were mostly confusing and had lots of debate about its necessity before its production. Okay, now let's take ourselves back eight years when Benedict Cumberbatch was just getting hot. And the discussion was, I don't understand why Benedict Cumberbatch is so hot. (laughs) And that's, that's not my personal opinion. I tend to like him. I see the, Uh I see the draw, but I know that that was a discussion in popular media.
2: Oh yeah, it was. And it was, it was, he's definitely one of those people that either you got it or you didn't. And I I got it. I think he's hot. I I, I, (laughs) super sexy, but part of, he's one of those who part of his sexiness is this intelligence about him. This, he's got a little bit of that you know, brooding guy who's clearly smart and has like emotion going on, at least, you know, just for some reason based on his appearance, his cadence, his strut, like everything just sort of oozes this um, opinion
0: (laughs) out. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: it's something I'm attracted to and a lot of other people. And I am now questioning this particular person who saw this Hamlet loves both David Tennant and Benedict Cumberbatch so it's entirely possible mm-hmm. it's that one that they saw yeah but I I get it I'm I'm totally into it but I can see why other people are like what what is sexy about this fancy
0: right and and uh you know while I didn't flat out say it I wasn't directly suggesting his sexiness uh, but more the fact that he was kind of the it thing but at the same time you know the it thing has a sexual allure just about any time I remember it was about that same time. Everybody's going, what's so important about Scarlett Johansson? She's knock-kneed. She doesn't know how to run and she's short. And you're at the same time, like going, yeah, but there's a lot to go on.
1: Well, and yeah, I think that that, quote again, having not seen it, but I think it's one of the traps of Shakespeare and this play and any of the plays with a titular character one of the traps is focusing solely on the titular character and not fleshing out the world. And so just from that little review, it sounds like if you don't support Hamlet with a really powerful Gertrude and a re- or, or angsty Gertrude or whatever, if you don't give him Ophelia that breaks your heart, if you don't build the entire ensemble of the show you can't do a good Hamlet because Mm -hmm. then it's just a bunch of famous lines all strung together. Um, So that might also be a problem. I think, especially if he's like the it guy and they're just like, well, that's the draw.
0: Yeah. And I I can speak to that because I've seen it and none of the other characters really leapt off the screen to me. You're there to watch Benedict Cumberbatch play Hamlet. And uh, I'll give two I'll give two reviews. The design, one one reviewer, uh, Ben Brantley from the New York Times, my favorite reviewer ever, said, I would have liked to have watched this Hamlet if they hadn't put him in such lighting that would have made it look like he was wearing a halo all the time. I couldn't focus on him. I'm like, well, okay, that's fair. But his his interpretations of the big scenes, you know, the Get thee to a nunnery, to be or not to be, all all of the big ones, they were almost downplayed mm. because they were to himself. Mm. Uh, I mean, not the Get thee to a nunnery. It was just kind of like you're annoying. Piss off. <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And so I kind of started to focus on that. But but I, I went, what a fresh take. Uh, okay, you you completed the assignment, Benedict. You, you put your own spin on it. Good job. The design for the rest of the show was like a gradual... It felt like a gradual hurricane was taking over Elsinore Castle and just filling it with more and more debris. And so there was this great hall that they would walk upstage and disappear that just eventually became a ramp of detritus. I mean, it was just <laughs> garbage from the floor to the back wall, and it would go literally upstage. And I went, okay.
2: Did it represent his mind?
0: Probably. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like Where you it gotta wonder was... with these, when you do this, yeah. Who's the it guy, they needed to play Hamlet. And for me, it's not just that you have to surround them with the actors who will flesh out this story and make, honestly, make them look good. Right. But it's also about the director.
0: Yes, yes.
2: You're directing choices. And yes, you could put an it guy in who makes all of his own choices and then it's his own damn fault. But when you're going to try to take an it person and give them a, a new Hamlet for the masses to fall in love with Shakespeare and this guy, you need a director who can work with that actor that there's a respect there and a shared vision. Because a lot of times what you end up with is a mess. Was the castle representation of his mind or was it that this castle is in such disarray now because of the horrible things that have happened to put the people in power who are in power. And, you know, Claudius isn't paying attention to anything now that he has the power he thought he wanted, you know, all of these choices, but if it's not clear what is happening and why it's happening, Happening, then it's it really is just detritus on a stage.
0: And and I could put on my theater history teacher cap here for just a second and go, well, if we look at Freytag's pyramid, the, uh, the climax should have happened at the middle of the play where he saw his uncle's response to the play within the play. And then he knew that he had to kill his uncle. But now I'm thinking about this, like it's the gradual climb to the climax at the end which is not what Shakespeare wrote, but we're forcing a climax at the end of the big duel and in two people dying by swords, one person dying by poisoning. And (sighs) okay, uh, now now that's just obnoxious. Thank you for pointing that out to me, Amelia. (laughs) Okay, I got a couple other uh, stage adaptations before I get into screen adaptations. Here we go. This first one will be kind of quick. Second one, I don't know if we're gonna have a lot of discussion, but I think it's interesting. 1772, David Garrick, famous British actor, took the play and he's like, well, I haven't played this one in a while. And in 1772, made significant alterations to it, including removing most of the deaths.
2: <laughs> wow. Hmm.
0: Like, uh, I think Gertrude at some point, yeah, she just went, help save me from my son and disappears in the, off stage and we never yeah. see her again. We don't know that she died. It doesn't matter. And of course, at that time, You know, people consider themselves a little bit more refined and they didn't want all that nasty murder business.
1: Yeah, there was that period in the 17s Mm -hmm. and 18s where, yeah, like Cordelia would live at the end and Romeo and Juliet would live at the end and everybody.
0: And even and even to a further point, Romeo and Juliet got married. Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, oh, they got over it. uh Did the conditions around them that made them force themselves into this tragic circumstance change? Probably not. But wedding. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it, it was very widely criticized, but Garrick had such an ego on him that he was just like, well, I don't care. People seem to like it, and he would continue yeah. to do it. So. All right. But here's one from 2021, and we, I think we all heard about this, and we were like, really. Sir Ian McKellen.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Played Hamlet at age 81 at the Theatre Royal Windsor. And I listened to an interview and, I'll, uh, you know, if you go to my page, you can look at the sources and you can go listen to this podcast. It's only a half hour long, but um, he said this version was mainly about just playing the words. Yeah, it would have to be, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it was less, I mean, it was like, Colorblind, gender blind age blind it doesn't matter play the role you know what you're talking about is the relationships between people and the connections between people and McKellen made a very strong point about you know you are bringing yourself as a person into this but Shakespeare was such a word Smith that if you just say the words correctly they should have the impact they're supposed to and, and and by correctly, I mean that's that's a difficult term to use, but uh but at the same time, like you go, okay, if if you pay attention to the cadence, if you pay attention mm-hmm. to the rhythm, if you pay attention attention to the structure, you can hear the poetry and you can hear the sense of that of what Shakespeare was trying to say. That's the point he was making. And I think that was overall the point of this production of being able to cast an 80-year-old man as Hamlet.
2: It's almost like a radio stage on play, mean on yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and,
2: And I guess I kind of want to
1: look at the rest of the cast list because, yeah, if I mean not to veer too much, but Seattle theater right now is definitely moving into the like gender blind, age blind, a lot of diverse casting. And sometimes it works really well, sometimes not as successful. And I think you're right. It's all about intention and knowing your character and knowing but theater is a visual art, and so there are parts where that I think that would probably work really well, because he's an amazing actor, and then there would probably be parts that aren't as powerful. I don't know. I And I think Hamlet is a weird role for that, because he should be young, but also you need somebody with the chops. Like, one of the first stage productions I ever saw i was just looking at pictures of it the other day actually and it was an older actor wearing a really bad wig (laughs) and i remember watching it and just being like "Uh, but that Uh, wig like can he just be bald i would be okay with him being bald (laughs) but that was like the lead actor of the company and yes he has Mm -hmm. the chops or so i don't know
0: yeah (laughs) yeah Well, I mean, and I don't mean to be disparaging to anybody exploring their identity or or society exploring uh, different identities and things. But, I mean, I think specifically about, you know, the scene in, in Gertrude's chambers where Hamlet and Gertrude are talking, you know, about this very specific relationship between a mother and a son. And that is a specific relationship. And I can see where it can be adapted to different things. But, you know, if it's going to be difficult if it's, if it's forced. Yeah. That's, that's kind of an opinion I have about that.
2: Yeah. That's actually the scene. And that's the relationship that I'm thinking about when you describe this production too. And for me, the, the bedroom scene is probably for me, one of the biggest scenes in, in Hamlet between Gertrude and Hamlet, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the word blind in casting is, is complicated to begin with, but, the reality of sitting in a theater and watching an 82 year old man. And again, we don't even know who was cast as Gertrude uh, right the second, but this relationship is at the core (laughs) of this play. And there's lots of ways that that scene has been interpreted and the relationship between Gertrude and Hamlet even interpreted as to how close they are and, and how they treat each other physically and, Emotionally, I mean, that, that gets interpreted different ways all the time, but if you're 82 and your mom is someone who looks like they're 40 and you're telling me like, <laughs> oh, but this is all just blind. Again, if I'm listening to it as an audio play, you can be whoever you are. I just right. write your voice and your intention and a story. But when I'm visually watching something and I'm constantly having to check myself going, oh no, no, that's his mom. I'm not in the story with you. I am reminding myself that I need to check all of these pre-notions and biases and everything else to the point that I have to do a lot of work.
0: Yeah. yeah. And there's there's that willing suspension of disbelief where, you know, you are really asking your audience to go far with <laughs> yes, some things. Exactly. So yeah, there there are some famous stage adaptations, but again, I think when we try to pin it to a generation and say, here is the definitive film version of this for this generation, here are some that I found that I think are kind of interesting. Of course, we're all children of the 90s. We're going to talk about Zeffirelli's version in 1990 with Mel Gibson and Glenn Close and Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, (laughs)
1: I'm sorry. I am like the only person in the world that doesn't like Alana <laughs> Bonham Carter. I don't know why I, maybe she's too similar to my own acting style. I don't know. <laughs> I just, and that version is so weird. I haven't seen it for decades, but I remember watching it and just, so being, this I,
2: is this is my defining version. That's, that's
0: your, uh, whoop. Okay. It here is we go. because
2: I'm, I'm a little older. I'm so, testing
0: friendships. Okay. Um, I'm
2: a little older. <laughs> So, you know, in 1990, I was of a certain age and, and in a certain place, <laughs> my relationship was Shakespeare. And so for me, that was the defining Hamlet that mm-hmm. everything after had to be compared to. It is, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Hamlet. I'm not even sure what it would be, but they are the ones who defined the characters. I had seen the Olivier in college and it, it I was like, oh, really? Really? And then I saw this, and I was like, "Oh, wow, okay, I get Shakespeare."
0: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
2: And I think Glenn Close's Gertrude might still be my favorite Gertrude.
0: It's pretty fantastic.
2: I haven't seen the Mel Gibson Hamlet in quite some time, but yeah, it holds a very special place in my heart.
0: I just remember that one; it was very prosaic. His his Hamlet was very, very forceful. But, you know, that's that's the actor, too, coming into it and bringing themselves to the part. Let's see. Here's uh, 1996, the Kenneth Brana version, yeah. clocking in at just over four hours. It's the first time the play has been filmed in its entirety using the full text.
1: And that one is more of a defining production for me. Mm-hmm. Although I say that and... Hey, I'm really glad to hear that Amelia has such a connection to the Gertrude Hamlet scene, because that is actually one scene in in Shakespeare that I still haven't seen my definitive relationship. Mm. I'm not really sure, you know, as I age as an actor, I do feel like hey, at some point that will be a role I'll be up for, or hopefully. But I don't really know that character. And so saying that Brana's version is definitive, I still don't remember all of the parts of it. But that's the first I remember watching that one several times uh, as a nerdy teen.
0: That is so interesting you say that because I've mentioned it before. Tom Empey, who is, you know, in the intro of the show, was kind of my theater mentor in my first two years and onward. But it was from him I found out and it was from two definitive Shakespeare characters that He said, when somebody looks at you and they're going to be casting you, they're only thinking two things. You're either a Caliban or you're a Tybalt. And I went, what does that mean? And then I had to grapple with the fact that I'm like, well, I'm six feet tall. I've got broad shoulders. I'm a big guy. But I've also got kind of a visage that like on one hand can be kind, but it can also be very menacing at the same time. Like, okay, I guess I see that. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, another definitive version. Uh, Amelia already mentioned it. The Olivier in 1948. Was kind of the one that brought it to the big screen. I mean, it had been done a lot of times, but here's an interesting fact about that it's the only direct Shakespeare adaptation to have ever won the Best Picture Oscar. Hmm. That's just trivia, but. (laughs) Interesting, yeah. Yeah. So I would say those are some of the more definitive, positive ones. Mm-hmm. I caught, there are some others that are fairly positive, but might not have a direct uh, link. But to get ready for this episode, I watched two of them, one of them being The Northman. But the other one, and I can't wait to hear what you all say about this in 2000, a production called Hamlet starring Ethan Hawke.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one. I liked that movie. I did you? Was, I did. I thought it was very of its time yeah and i really appreciated that someone was was doing a film because that's the stage thing to do all the time but someone who was a you know who is a a very good actor put together this really cool slick modern hamlet i i liked it for what it was
0: Man. Yeah, yeah. I I will agree with that. Uh, I will say thank you to Bill Murray for playing Polonius because he nailed it. Liev Schreiber played an amazing Laertes. And Kyle MacLachlan as Claudius was outstanding because the whole thing was about not a kingdom but a corporation. And yeah. so it was a little bit more about, you know, the, the levels of corporate greed and what, what people will do for corporate greed. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, this might not be the play for corporate greed. I would, I could see a Macbeth being about corporate greed, but um, you know what you do, you that's fine.
2: Give me timing of Athens. I'm just saying somebody give me timing of Athens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well,
1: and that was right in, I feel like I want to rewatch that now because it doesn't feel like the 90s were that long ago, but also they were a long time ago now. And um, so I think the parts of that film that feel dated that probably didn't feel dated when I first watched it would be interesting.
0: That, oh, Nicole, that's what I got, that's what I got hung up on with that one. And Amelia, I'm glad you, you said, I thought it was cool for what it was. It was, it was of its time. Here's what I ultimately thought. I was sitting there watching it and go, I'm not cool enough to be in a room with these people. (laughs) They're all way too cool for me. Welcome (laughs) to
2: 2000.
0: Right. Nobody was cool enough to be in a room with other people. I mean, Hamlet himself had the same haircut that Stephen Dorff did in Blade as the bad guy. And I'm like, okay.
1: But I think you did bring up, I think one of the big pitfalls to me, to all uh, adaptations, Shakespeare wrote about these giant things, these kings and kingdoms. And when you adapt something to be like, corporate greed or, you know, Julia Stiles was in that. And then she also did the, oh, Othello set in a high school. Yes. And you minimize the stakes. I think that is often a a real bad choice. Yeah. <laughs> because, I don't know. And I think that it's that weird thing in theater. Like sometimes you can have a flavor of it or something like, obviously, especially in live productions. You need to have costumes. Not every Hamlet needs to be done in a doublet and hose. And in fact, it's a little off-putting if every single one is. So maybe this time you do just wear business suits and whatever. But I'm not saying this specifically about the Ethan Hawk one because I haven't seen it in a long time. But there are definitely productions that those stakes get really minimized by the adaptation. And I think that can be a problem.
0: Well, and I see what you're talking about there because they use the original text. So you never find out what the Denmark corporation did. You know, I could see if it could even be done if they wanted to go so far as to use something like the Apple logo or the Amazon logo. But in 2000, you know, I can't even think what what was the big corporation, Coca-Cola. Are you going to take them on? Are they is that what they're the giants of? And then now you have to set it in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay i think we already talked about the Northmen a bunch but here's some that uh are either directly or indirectly related rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead <laughs> tim roth and gary oldman for those of you who don't know it's an adaptation of the play by tom stoppard who i just freaking love uh and it focuses on the existential and philosophical dealings of the two title characters who are surreptitiously killed stage in the original source material and and then you, so the whole play is like an existential uh, dealing of, well, if this is literally all my purposes, then what did my life mean?
1: Amelia,
2: have you ever worked on that show? I have seen it multiple times. I have seen the film and I remember for fun, I, we used to like, we would read the scene, the, the, what is it, the questions, guessing, what do they call the game?
0: Yeah, 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 I can't even think of what it's called. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, something, and there's stuff with coins and yeah.
2: Yeah, we would play the game scene for fun. Like in college, we would read that scene. And I think act <laughs> after college, because it was so great. And the language was so amazing. Um, but I've never personally directed or been uh, an actor in the show. I, th- I think that
1: play sets a bad precedent because it's so good and it's such a good riff on hamlet and and a good play on its own but you do need the context but it opens the door as though we need more plays about actors doing their thing and there are tons <laughs> of plays about Theater and some of them are so good, and then some of them are so
2: bad. And <laughs> <laughs> that makes me wonder how do you feel? Not so much about the like, yeah, plays about actors and movies about actors, but the there's this trend of, of taking the side character and giving them their own story, yeah. which mm. I have not seen Rosalind. Oh. Um, and I have not seen Ophelia. These are both, uh, Rosalind is a, um, I think it's Rosalind, right? Isn't that the name? Uh,
0: the, like uh, the, the in uh, Rome, ro- the <laughs> okay. one that causes Romeo's heartbreak to go meet right. Julia.
2: There's a whole TV show where she's the main character that looks like it's funny. I haven't seen it, and now there's the new um, Ophelia movie. So you know the, this this idea, which seems to be growing lately, of taking the taking a different character since we all know these stories so well, and and going with. Their perspective, which was which isn't quite what's happening in Rose, Rosenkrantz and Guildenstern, but mm-hmm. it's a trend that's happening now, and I do find it interesting. I don't think it undercuts anything, but I think it's, it's fun.
0: Well, I mean, there's the musical on Broadway right now, and Juliet, which isn't the whole crux of that. What if Juliet decided not to kill herself at the end?
1: Oh. Uh. <laughs> Hold
2: yes. it not like this. People do not see don't face. So, into any of this? Uh, not really. I mean, I
1: think that it. To me, it goes back to another thing that I fell in love with in middle school. That's perhaps problematic. Gone with the wind, and like mm. reading Gone with the wind. And yes, everyone gets to the end, and you're like, no, they should end up together. And then you read perhaps. The, like, not written by Margaret Mitchell, the second book, Scarlet, which they do get together and you realize why art is the way it is. You don't want, you don't actually want them to get together. That's the point of the thing. Like, we don't need to know Rosalind's backstory because she is this ethereal presence in Romeo's life that then gets eclipsed by Juliet and we don't need to know. And, you know, yes, wicked was an amazing musical and it's really, and the music is great, but I listened to the book or read the book before that. And it's not a good book and it's (laughs) dumb and it, and there are logical leaps that don't make sense. And like, I don't know. Uh, It just makes Uh... me mad. Like I don't need to know all of that stuff i want to think it and i want to yearn for it but i don't actually want to see it
0: <laughs> I guess see, mm-hmm.
1: i
2: guess though this brings me back i didn't even realize it i guess actually at its core what it is is fanfic yeah like you said at the yeah, beginning I was just gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah we really have fallen in love with our fanfic and made oh, it
0: reality God. well my older son right now he's making that transition he's 15 so he's really starting to enjoy the things that are more adult in his mind and kind of looking at the things that he enjoyed as a kid and going, do I still like these anymore? Um, And, you know, he grew up in the time when the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is just burgeoning. So, you know, I mean, he's been those characters for Halloween and we've read those books and we've watched those movies tons of times. And now, you know, I think everybody's kind of going, are they jumping the shark? right now is this what's happening uh, and then you're going wait a minute their parent company disney is is has like five of the biggest franchises right now out there and they're all kind of doing the same thing you know we're looking at the star wars universe and mike mike is kind of going i like these ones I don't care for anything after this. And uh, I really don't care what happened to Boba Fett or Obi-Wan because I got their story in the things that I like. I don't need any more. Why does he have this particular thing on his shelf in the one movie? Oh, let's make three episodes about that in the, in the, in the show. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't make sense.
1: I guess different audiences. I don't have to watch it. That's of course a big thing. Like, I think then I get very on my high horse about it when people start like, well, Ophelia did this and blah, blah, blah. Like you don't need to know anything more about Ophelia than what is actually in the text. Oh, And then, thank you. And then what the actors bring to it, right? Like to me, one of the beautiful things about that is Amelia's met my father, my father, the, like, random quote man, is a Polonius. And, like, he is, to me, he's not every Polonius. Some Poloniuses are very, like, business-minded and blah, blah, blah. But my dad is this, like, well-intentioned, but ultimately completely misguided and very verbose on no particular topic person and so to me were I to play Ophelia that is a very informative relationship and maybe in rehearsals you discover like we've decided that she's never had this mother figure so she's closer to Gertrude blah 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 but that's the joy of individual interpretations and individual productions and so I think sometimes those fanfic and right now this we're in a big reboot and capitalize on known quantities because of course the entertainment industry is where it is Uh, so like oh we'll capitalize on you know this rather Mm -hmm. than just telling a new story because that's scary as soon as it turns into well now every Ophelia has got to wear a red ribbon around her neck because that's in the show or some weird thing like that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I, I love what you said because something I've always taken with me through all my years and acting and performance and everything is everything you need to know about your characters in the script. You have what you have. You're given what you're given. Yes. That might cause you to do a little bit of research. We're talking about Hamlet and we're talking about, the Northman, the, the legend of Amleth, actually has Amleth finding out that his, his uncle killed his father. And in order to not usurp the throne so he could probably more accurately enact his revenge, he feigns madness. So you're like, ooh, that's interesting that that came through in the hamlet version of things where people are going is he crazy i don't know but it was more for a thing of if you could be considered mad then you could never legally take the throne and that was just a socio-political thing at the time but that madness element has carried through in just about every version of hamlet we've seen since but the idea that here's the recipe here's the recipe you have the instructions and you have the actor Okay. If I'm baking cookies, I could bake with Toll House chips or I could bake with uh, store brand chips and it's going to taste different, but you're still kind of following the recipe. But everything you bring to it brings something new. Yeah. And every person who comes into it is bringing themselves, which is completely unique. So I would say those are my takeaways from today. Yeah. (laughs) But I will also say, my gosh, you really opened up a new door for me that. it wasn't margaret mitchell no it wasn't but god somebody got scarlet o'hara fanfic actually published and oh, yeah. then adapted to a tv mini-series is it a mini-series as
1: well i don't know yeah. Probably. or was it just a
0: movie i can't remember i think I it was just, more than one part it.
1: yeah i just oh. read the the book but that's yeah, fantastic i don't know, I don't that's know. fantastic and, oh yeah i guess in the end it Upon re-listen, probably my opinions go back and forth through this whole episode. Like, don't <laughs> add up
2: anything. I, I can't help myself. 1994, Scarlet with two Ts, a six-hour television miniseries based on the book. Uh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: six hours. Well, it's a very long book. She goes back to Ireland for a while. <laughs> She's
0: anyway. And does, and does she get over there and go, you know, maybe this relationship with Rhett isn't working out
1: i don't even remember (laughs) i just i just know that it was you know the cruel young person first coming to realize it's okay that there are not plot holes it's okay if a story leaves you feeling like you want more if you want to see it again you want to see new versions of it that's fine you don't always have to get everything that your heart feels like you want. I think that's a big takeaway for, um, yeah, Disney could listen a little bit on that too. It would
0: be interesting to wonder why Polonius is offended when he's called a fishmonger. And doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's <laughs> flash back and show
0: his rise to I, power. I never learned how to fish. Yeah. <laughs> Well, did we include your favorite? There were so many to pick from that I had to make a few choice cuts. But before we go, I want to send my heartfelt gratitude to Nicole Vernon and Amelia Meckler-Bowers for being my guests on this episode, and they are welcome back anytime. And remember, in two weeks, we conclude the discussion on adaptations of Hamlet with a deep look at Disney's The Lion King, which I affectionately dub Safari Hamlet, even though it's a loose adaptation at best. This is a great conversation with my son Mike, who absolutely... Absolutely, is the target audience of that type of adaptation. But for now, I'll sign off. This is Aaron Odom with Trident Theatre in Sheridan, Wyoming. We'll be back in two weeks, and I'll see you at Intermission.